Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball. From growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh my God, how could he do that? Are you on What? Charles Darwin. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh, where we are live in the studio at Blaze Radio for the first time in quite some time. As always, I'm your host, Carson Brabber. Alongside me today is Logan Camden. And today, we are going to be doing a little bit of a Nerd Sesh classic here. We're talking NBA, and we're going to be doing a game we call NBA True or False. So Logan, I'm going to pose nine statements to you. You tell me if they're true or false. We discuss why. So let's start with one that I think has sort of been in the zeitgeist as of late, as Steph Curry has really started to come on strong, playing historically great basketball. True or false? Steph is as good as he's ever been right now. Now, I'm going to say false for one reason. I just don't think he has the same level of talent around him that he always has, Carson. And he averaged six to eight assists every season. Clay and him were fully healthy. I just don't think you can maximize his abilities as a passer without elite catching shooters around him. He's averaging 5.9 this season. And percentage-wise, there are other guys who I think are capable of replacing Clay by percentage. Juan Toscano-Anderson is at 53% as a catch-and-shooter this year. Kent Bazemore is at 48%. Damian Lee is at 41%. But they can nowhere max the you know the same volume that Clay was shooting a night. Every season, every game, he was getting six to nine catch-and-shoot attempts a night. Now, again, I say that as a team and how it affects Steph. Individually, Carson, this is the most impressed I have ever been with Steph Curry as a scorer, as a leader, as a offensive engine. 30 points per game, his second highest uh, career mark on 49-43-93 splits. And I said maybe even more dominant, his most field goals attempts per game for his entire career, the second most three-point attempts per game for his entire career. And at 14-12, and 12, Carson, I think talent-wise this is not a 500 team. Steph Curry is carrying the load for this Warrior squad right now and honestly should be in the MVP conversation once again. Well, so it's interesting to me that you talk about maybe him not having maximum playmaking value because of the guys around him. I actually think the lack of supporting cast is a testament to how historically incredible he has been this season because his points per shot attempt are actually higher than they were in his MVP season. So to be able to maintain that level of efficiency with just so much less spacing, with so many more opportunities for people to double you, to throw every defensive look that they want at you, that is incredible because 
When you get Steph, he has always been a benefactor of having great players around him to a certain extent where he can play off the ball like he loves to. And guys are going to take advantage of the spacing that he creates and the gravity that he has. If you look at the 2015-16 season, which I think is obviously the bar that we're comparing this to because that's his unanimous MVP year, the Warriors around him, excluding his stats, shot 39.5% from three. That would have been the best in the league by over 2% in that year as the league still wasn't shooting the ball as well as they are right now. This year... Non-Steph Warriors are shooting 35%. That's 23rd in the league, and they came into this season with two career shooters above league average from beyond the arc. So I think that if you look at that and the role that it's forced him to take, where he's playing more pick and roll, and he's 95th percentile out of it, he's actually been a little bit better than he was in that 2015-16 season. 1.18 points per possession this year versus 1.11 then. And he's running two to three more of them per game than he was in the KD era because he doesn't have that luxury of playing off ball as much anymore. Now, he's still deadly off the catch, obviously, as deadly as anybody, but we're also seeing him get to the line more. We're seeing him be really aggressive there. He's attempting the second most free throws of his career in more than that year, and I think that's because, again, he's having to just try to carve out these buckets for himself. They're not coming to him. He's having to force them a little bit more. But we also see an incredible variety from him as a scorer this year where he's shooting 52% on over twice as many floaters as he was in that 2015-16 season. And I think that that speaks to the fact that when you look at his situation that year, things sort of came to him naturally. And now he has to carve them out a little bit more again. He's shooting 52.5% from mid-range versus 42.5% that year. So he's doing it with more variety. It's a higher degree of difficulty. And what's crazy is he's gotten so much more consistent throughout this year. Because there was a time when I looked at the situation and said, this is about as difficult as a basketball situation that a star player could be in. Especially with Steph's skill set where he does need to play off the ball. He does need people who can set him up and put him in spots to succeed. And now he's creating for himself at such a high level. And again... He's not having off nights after he had a couple of those tough games to begin the season. His last 15 games, giving you 32 points per game on 53-48-93 splits. He has gone under 24 points one time in 15 games versus five times over his first 11. He's gone below 50% shooting just three individual games over the last 15 versus seven of the first 11. And another thing that I think this speaks to, Logan, is when you and I did our top five players in basketball, neither of us had Steph there. I actually still would not have Steph there, which I think is insane because when Steph was playing at this level in 15-16, I would say he was a top three player in basketball. I just think the league has gotten so much better since then. Look around. Look at everybody. Kawhi is better. AD is better. James Harden is better. We have the introductions of guys like Luka and Jokic and Giannis. And nobody's really dropped off. LeBron hasn't dropped off. KD hasn't dropped off. It's just a ridiculous basketball world that we are living in right now. So tremendously talented. But have I sold you at all that maybe this is the most impressive year of Steph's season or the best that he's ever been? No, you definitely have. And I think that there, uh, there are some stats that ESPN put out that are really interesting about Steph. Now, this includes back to when he, uh, back to like the start of the 2013 season, but this also counts for every individual year moving forward. Steph has been top five in makes rank and percentage rank in literally every single shooting category across the board, no matter what type of three-point shot it is, catch and shoot, contested, uncontested. Steph is unequivocally, I think, the best shooter that we've ever had. Carson, I want to ask you this. Is this most is this the most impressed you've been with Steph just purely shooting-wise in his entire career? Well, as of late, there's a case to be made. I would say no, though. I would say if it's beyond the arc value, still give me the 15-16 season. He's at 43% now. He's been unbelievable these last six or seven games. He did get off to a colder start, but it's the in-between stuff. It's getting to the bucket. It's out of the pick and roll. That's what's been the differentiator to me. And I also want to touch on that one point about your top five players. So who are you taking stuff over? Are you taking stuff over Luka? I, well, that's a really tough one. I think right now, 
with his gravity, I would take Steph ever so slightly, but isn't that ridiculous? Neither of those guys are in my top five, Logan. And neither is the two-time reigning MVP, Giannis Antetokounmpo. We're just at a historic time in the NBA as far as talent, and that is an amazing place to be. Let's talk about a couple of teams, though, that certainly have talent, but have been disappointing for a decent amount of the season. Now a couple of them are starting to turn it around, but we've talked about the struggles of the Raptors of the Heat, and basically, I think our feeling was, for the most part, they're going to turn it around, especially maybe with the Heat because they were so decimated by injuries. At least that's been my feeling. I don't want to put words in your mouth. But now we have a team that started a little better is now trending in the wrong direction. So, Logan, true or false, the Indiana Pacers are actually in more trouble than the Raptors or the Heat. Let's start by just talking about the Pacers and what's going on with them. Uh, so this is very true. I mean, they've been kind of ravaged by injuries. Uh, TJ Warren's been out since January 1st. Karis LeVert has been out since the Oladipo trade went through. So... They've been down roster-wise, but offensively, Carson, this does not look like the same team that we saw earlier on in the season. The Pacers are playing a lot of iso ball recently with Malcolm Brogdon and DeMontis Sabonis not sharing the ball, and it's really uncharacteristic for Indiana because they're second in passes made this season, they're seventh in assists, and uh, in their loss versus the Nets and, and in their losses in recent memory, a lot of shots were early in the shot clock. Sabonis went 7 of 20. Brogdon went 5 of 17. And their loss versus the Jazz, Sabonis went 7 of 19. Brogdon went 7 of 20. And I don't know if you're seeing a theme here. In their loss versus the Jazz, uh, excuse me, in their loss versus the Pelicans, Sabonis went 3 of 13. Brogdon went 6 of 15. So this speaks to the fact that, one, they aren't moving the ball around like they were earlier in the season when they were winning games. And two, they simply just aren't getting enough production out of their two stars. And that is an overarching problem, I think, Carson. When Brogdon and Sabonis are your two stars and you're depending on them night in, night out, I'm not saying that you know they aren't talented players. They definitely are. I love Malcolm Brogdon uh, as, a, as an all-around point guard, but when you're comparing him to the top-end talent of the Raptors in the Heat, they literally just don't compare. Well, I also think that another thing that we're seeing really become a problem for the Pacers is the fact that they kind of have to be that dependent on Brogdon and Sabonis. Now, the Brogdon and Sabonis pick and roll is a thing of beauty. Brogdon's scoring is up yet again this year. He continues to improve. Sabonis is shooting from the on the arc like, like we've never seen from him. He continues to improve and is always one of the best post players in basketball. But I just think when you look at the absence of TJ Warren, who's been gone since the first four games of the season, and now they were expecting to have Karis LeVert in here as another creator, maybe play with the second unit a little bit, can give you some value as a catch-and-shoot guy. Not having either of them, is problematic. And also, I would say that they're in more trouble partly because the Raptors injuries, the Heat injuries, actually the Raptors were never really injured. They were just playing really badly. They were never that severe. These are some pretty severe injuries. TJ Warren had surgery. We don't know when he's going to be back. Karis LeVert had cancer surgery. We don't know when he's going to be back. But aside from that, to look at the other side of the ball, that's actually where I think we're seeing a lot of the problems arise for this Indiana team because their success has been so predicated on elite team defense. Last year, they were sixth in defensive rating. The year before that, they were third in defensive rating. This year, they are basically league average there. And so when you don't have that kind of overwhelming offensive talent where they're not going to put up 120-something on teams on a night-to-night -night basis, they're not going to be a top three, three-point shooting team in basketball, you are going to feel the lack of elite defense, and that's why I think that they're trending in the wrong direction. And I think the biggest issue that I've seen the last few games with their defense, I think it's a good point that you bring up, DeMontis Sabonis should not be playing in the paint for this team defensively, and teams are smart enough now where, look, I think Miles Turner's made a huge jump, Carson, and teams will game plan to get Sabonis into the paint, get Miles Turner out on the perimeter just to create a mismatch, and Sabonis is a horrible interior defender. When Turner's not on the inside, they get bullied in there.
Do you like Sabonis much more out on the perimeter, though? Because I don't really. I think he's just a tough fit defensively. No, I completely agree. I think that it's just hard to play Sabonis and Turner on the floor together at the 4-5 and five spot. I think Sabonis has got to get a little better defending in general, and he's got to run the 5. I just don't think he can run the 4 in the modern NBA. And it's something we've talked about for a while, but I agree with you. I think they feel the losses on the defensive end of a guy like Victor Oladipo, and you're just putting the Justin Holidays of the world in a spot that maybe you didn't expect him to be in. I like Justin Holiday. He's been playing fine. But you're not necessarily expecting him to be playing 32 minutes a game for this team, considering the expectations coming into the season. And you haven't seen the leaps that maybe I was optimistic about from a guy like Aaron Holiday, who I thought would maybe be a contender for most improved player this year. I still love this bench unit. I still think this team is about as deep as any in basketball. But when they're not playing that elite defense, you're going to have problems really winning a high clip of games because the offense has never been that explosive. So let's now shift this conversation to the other teams because... The Heat, again, are trending in the right direction. They have won now four straight, and they've gotten Jimmy back healthy. The Raptors are shooting the lights out. They're playing incredible offensive basketball. Why should those teams be a little bit less concerned at this point? Oh, the Raptors? No, they need to be concerned. Okay. I I think that, yeah, offensively they've been on fire recently, but this was a problem with the Raptors last season. It's been a problem with when Pascal Siakam's been out there defensively on the floor. Carson, they don't close out on shooters at all. They are one of the worst teams at – uh, defensive rotating, and that's been an issue since Kawhi left. Uh, they allow the fourth most assists in the NBA. They have they allow the fifth most threes. And just, Pascal frustrates me, Carson. He gets caught up in screens easily. He loses his man. And then you have another negative defender on the floor most of the time when Siakam's out there and Fred Van Vliet. He gambles a little too much. He over-rotates. He tries to double-team guys when they're just not there, which allows a lot of open threes. It's just frustrating to watch. And then, more to that, they have... a just so many interior issues like we've already spoke on. Against the Grizzlies, Jonas Valanciunas went for 27 points and 20 boards when Boucher and Siakam are on the floor. I just think, I think Boucher's just a little too skinny to play the five in the NBA, man. He gets, he's a good shot blocker because of how long he is, but he just gets bullied by bigger fives. And because Pascal runs the four, he has to be out on the perimeter. He's a horrible perimeter defender. It's just, there are so many net negatives here. And then a guy like Aaron Baines, uh, he's just, he's not the same dominant post presence that we've seen. Carson, my favorite stat that I found when we were doing research for this, the worst three-man lineup for the Raptors this season, Aaron Baines, Pascal Siakam, and Fred Van Vliet. They're negative 49 on the floor together. It's, they have so many defensive issues to address this season. Yeah, so I think that you can talk about the issues that we have with maybe Siakam and Van Vliet on that end. I would not call Van Vliet a minus defensively. I do think, though, the distinction to be made here is I would say both of those guys are good one-on-one defenders. They may not be great team defenders, though. And I think that you talk about some of the lapses from Siakam. You've talked about those previously. I understand where you're coming from. Van Vliet, I do still think, is a dog. He's a great competitor there, but he does have his limitations as well. I think what this comes down to, though, because they were an elite, elite defense with those guys obviously playing the same amount of minutes last year, when you just don't have that defensive floor general, that kind of guy in a Gasol, or Siakam, who can be mobile, who can sort of direct traffic, who can protect the rim. You really feel that, and we've talked about it as much as anything. Boucher may be that electric shock blocker. You're right, he can't really guard a variety of NBA fives, so that has been problematic for them. I do want to say, though, there's one guy on this Raptor squad that has been on fire lately, and that's been Norman Powell. Mm-hmm. Eight of the last ten games, he scored 20 points, and he's improved his shooting across the board this season. 52% at the rack, 45% from the field, 42% from deep. Even better... Norman Powell is one of the best mid-range scorers in the NBA, shooting 66% from the mid-range this season. He's just, I don't know, man. He's taking a step. He looks more aggressive. I just don't know if it it fixes all their issues because I don't think that they're in the need for more offensive talent. I don't think it fixes all their issues. I think that they are going to be 
an okay playoff team. I think that they will probably still be certainly in the 6-8 through eight seed range, I would say. I do think, though, it's important that we've seen their shooting fully weaponized now because this was probably the best shooting team in basketball last year. Now they're playing like that again. They're third and three-pointers made, doing it on the fifth-best clip. I do think, though, as much as Van Vliet has been balling offensively, and obviously Lowry is always going to do his thing, and Norman Powell, as you mentioned, is having those explosions, I think that we need to come to terms with Siakam. You talked about the defensive end. Offensively, he just kind of is what he is. And so, obviously, he had such an incredibly hot start to last season. But if you take that away, and if you just go with his stats from the 2020 calendar year leaking now into 2021, he's scoring 20.2 points per game on 30% from three. That's a 67-game sample size. So if you're expecting something more from him, I think all the limitations that I saw in him when he was that second or third guy in that Raptors title run, those have all been proven valid. He's not that dynamic shot creator off the dribble. He's not going to consistently knock down threes even off the catch. He's just weird. He's grown as a playmaker. It's been awesome to see him make more of those reads, but the limitations are serious. So I think there's been a lot of talk about which direction the Raptors take this. We've touched on it. I still think even though I think they are a competitive playoff team, as I've expected this whole year, I think they probably move on from Lowry because of his value just to a contender, but we've talked about that enough in the past. Let's talk about the Heat now, because they are the team that has really come on strong. Why should they not be as concerned as maybe some people were thinking? I'm not worried about the Heat at all. I mean, Bam Adebayo, I think, is right on that cusp of defensive player of the year voting. I think that just just what he does, it doesn't show up in the box score. He doesn't have the blocks, he doesn't have the steals, but he's such a good rotator, he's such a good... He just does everything that you want. He's like a pseudo uh, Anthony Davis, in my opinion, with how he moves on the floor. I don't mean his true defensive impact. Um, But they allow the least points in paint per game this season. They're ninth in defensive rating. They're fourth in opponent field goal percentage. They force teams to take tough shots because they got a lot of gritty defenders. They've got that dominant post presence in Bam Adebayo. And then offensively, Carson, the biggest reason I'm not concerned, they are still attempting the eight most threes in the NBA this season. They're eighth in true shooting percentage. And they've got a lot of shooters down their lineup. I know that this season, Duncan Robinson has struggled. Tyler Hero has struggled. This team plays hard defense, and they put up a lot of threes. That is just a recipe for success in the NBA. And comparative to these two other teams, they just have two bigger stars in Bam Adebayo and Jimmy Butler, guys who I just trust more. So for the Heat sitting at 11-14, and 14, they were 7-14. and 14. You might think that there's cause for concern. I really don't, and I never really have. They aren't just fine. They're already good, and I think it is a very real possibility that they are better than last year's team that made the finals. And I think it comes down to one very simple thing. Injuries. They're 8-5 and five when Jimmy plays. He's far and away their best player. Maybe not far and away, actually, but I think he is their best player. They're 17 points per 100 better with him on the floor. Logan, you're giving me a confused look. You would say that they're better than last year's finals team. No, I'm saying I think that there is a real possibility that by the end of the year, they are. It's not like last year's team was a great regular season group, and I think that they have improvements across the board in some ways. Bam! We've talked about his offensive evolution with the mid-range pull-up game now. So much more effective as a scorer. Hero, more comfortable out of the pick-and-roll. More comfortable creating for himself. Flat-out better than last year. I think Bradley has the possibility to be an upgrade from a guy even like Jay Crowder with how great he was over the first few games of the season. We just haven't seen them healthy at the same time at all. So even if they're not better than last year, and by the way, I don't expect them to replicate that result by any stretch of the imagination because the East is so much better. But even if they don't take it that far, they're going to be a very good basketball team. And I think that that is just the important takeaway for them. So let's move on now, Logan. Third true or false statement of the day. With the all-star season approaching us, and we'll talk about that in more depth as we get even closer, but there's one sort of matchup that has become pretty interesting in my eyes. So true or false, Zach Levine has a better all-star case than Trey Young. 
I'm going to go false. And it, it's so hard to go with this just because of what Levine has done these past two seasons. 25 points per game last year, 28 this year on great efficiency, 51% from the field, 42% from deep. And he's even better in the pick and roll this season by percentile than Trey Young. The only reason I'm going with Trey is there are similar usage rates, similar turnovers per game. Trey brings me so much more playmaking-wise and just making all of his teammates better. He's second in assists per game. He's first in secondary assist, second in potential assist, first in adjusted assist to pass percentage. He's just... And these are the best on-off splits of his career. Trey is doing stuff that... He's just making his teammates better in a way that we haven't seen before. And I know it's still not the most efficient way of playing basketball. We still get those ISO tray possessions, which I think are bad for the Atlanta Hawks. If this team was predicated on ball movement, I think they have a better record than where they're sitting right now. But Trey is still, and his efficiency isn't as good as Levine, as I've already touched on, 41%, 36% from the field. But Trey just makes his teammates better in a way that I just don't think Zach does. Well, I completely agree that that is the crux of this argument. And it's crazy because... It's so hard to deny a guy who's giving you 28-5-5 on 65% true shooting. He's, I think, 52% from the field, 42% from three, in the high 80s from the line. Not that far off from Steph Curry efficiency, for example. And Trey is still above league average. He's 59% true shooting. But I think it just comes down to something that you cannot quantify with basic statistics like that. I think you can quantify it, though, with some team impact statistics. So you mentioned on-off. The Hawks are 10.7 points per 100 better with Trey Young on the floor than off the floor. That's a pattern that we saw last year as well. They needed him so badly to carry that offense. This year a little different, and I think he could have adjusted more. I don't think he's had the best season he could have by any stretch of the imagination. But if you look at the other end, Levine. The Bulls are 10.5 points worse per 100 possessions with him on the floor, and that's the sixth time in seven years that he's had negative on-off splits. So you cannot dismiss that. That is a very well-established pattern, and it's obvious in the way you watch him play. We can congratulate him on having career-high assists and career-high efficiency. That's great. Zach Levine has never for a second not been a bucket in this league. He used to be one of my favorite players to watch when he was up and coming with the Timberwolves and in the beginning of his time with the Bulls just because he was such an electric scorer, a three-level scorer. I'm a fiend for the mid-range game. Everybody knows that. A beautiful finisher around the rim. But He's never been able to elevate his teammates. He's always gotten locked into, even if it is out of the pick and roll and he's looking to facilitate, he gets locked into one guy. I think you see the high turnover numbers there are are part of that as well. He can be an over-dribbler of the ball. And yeah, Trey has some deficiencies as well. And if one of these guys should be making three times as many catch-and-shoot threes as the other on 12% better efficiency, it should 100% be Trey Young, who could have... Steph Curry, Damian Lillard-esque off-ball value, but he just doesn't. It's Zach Levine, who is the one making 1.4 catch-and-shoot threes a game on 47% from deep. Trey needs to learn how to play off the ball more. We talk about this every time with him, but it's the playmaking value. He's one of the best lob throwers in basketball, and he has such an awesome partner to do it with in John Collins. So brilliant creating for shooters. And even though he doesn't know how to maximize it, you still feel his gravity. Zach Levine is the kind of guy who, in a vacuum, I would probably take to get a bucket maybe over Trey Young, but that's just not what this comes down to. It comes down to how do you impact the people around you, and Trey, even though he probably still holds on to the ball for too long, even though his shot selection can be poor at times, I'm still taking him in that conversation every single time. I don't want to get too podcasty here, Carson, but what do you think Zach Levine's like, uh, perfect fit would be in the league? I think that he's an electric sixth man somewhere. That, to me, is what I look at for all these guys when you have that fill-it-up ability, but you don't really have anything else. And again, the playmaking has grown a little bit, but if you're going to look at Zach Levine and say he's making reads that most other NBA ball handlers don't, I think you're lying to yourself. And I think that he misses them much more often than he makes them. So 
That's what it comes down to. I will say for his on-off splits, basically the entire Bulls starting five is negative, but the pattern is so well established, and you just have to watch him play. It's like it's the Zach Levine show when he has the ball in his hands, and that's problematic. Okay, so let's segue into a little more of a philosophical discussion here because we like to dig into the specifics, the nitty-gritty of the league here on Nerd Sesh, but... We do have just a really well-established pattern this year that it feels like anybody can beat anybody. And there are very, very few bad teams in basketball this year. So, Logan, true or false, this much parity is actually bad for basketball. I mean, false. You're never going to get me to say that the the better the basketball product gets, that it's worse for for basketball. I think this is the best best basketball product we've ever seen, Carson. And I think that that in a few years, it's going to be worse in, in the sense that Anybody's going to be able to beat anybody. I think that lottery teams are going to be decided much later in the season than earlier on in the year. They're going to be much more decided by injuries and stuff. We are just getting so much better year-to-year talent-wise with the crop in the NBA. So, no, I I would never say that. I think that parity is always good for the league. I think that, I mean, this year's Lakers team is a lot closer to (laughs) this year's Detroit Pistons than we would say like five years ago with the champion and the worst team in the league. Um, No, I love it. I love parity in basketball. I agree. I think this statement is false. And part of the reason why is if we had a 1978-79 kind of feel where you have some of these teams that are winning just around 50 games, making the finals consistently, your Sonics of the world, your Washington Bullets of the world, that I think is not good for basketball. What's important here is you have talent on every single team. Every single team gives you a reason to watch them. But then you also still have that clearly defined tier at the top. You still have your Lakers and your Clippers and your Bucks and your Nets and your Celtics. And maybe a couple of those teams, the Nets, the Celtics, aren't playing like a top-tier team right now. But I think that we're all confident that they will get there. So now you just have competitive games top to bottom elsewhere. Night to night feels like every game is interesting. And that's incredible. Again, every single team has maybe even multiple players who you are really excited to watch on a night-to-night basis. And I agree with you. I will never say that that is a bad thing. So... With that, we're going to take it to a quick break. We will be back very soon, continuing to answer some true or false statements. You're listening to Nerd Sesh on Blaze Radio and blazeradioonline.com. Welcome back, everybody. Did you miss us? We're only gone for about a minute there, but we are back answering some more NBA true or false questions, as we love to do here on Nerd Sesh. So, Logan... We talked about some of the parity. Let's get to a team that has been pretty consistently at the top of their conference, the Philadelphia 76ers. True or false, they should be the Eastern Conference favorites right now. False, but oh, I love watching the Philadelphia 76ers play, and I love talking about them even more. Carson, this is such a drastically better Sixers team than last year, and probably second for me out East. Uh, You've touched on this point a lot uh, in our previous podcast. They have the second overall five-man lineup in the NBA. They're starting five. Ben Simmons, Seth Curry, Danny Green, Tobias Harris, and Joel Embiid. As for Embiid, 29-11 this season on an extremely efficient 54% and 38% from deep. Carson, only three big men in NBA history have shot this well on this many field goal attempts per game. Joel Embiid this season, Nikola Jokic this season, and Chris Webber in 1996 and Weber only played 19 games that season. So we are seeing two historic offensive center seasons this year, and I don't want them to overshadow each other. Um, 
As for other guys on this team, this is the best version of Tobias Harris we have ever seen, the most points per game of his entire career, the best field goal percentage of his entire career, the best three-point percentage of his entire career. As for Ben Simmons, I think that a lot of people have criticized him so much this season for for no reason. Uh, He's averaging a career low in points per game, so you can look at the box score and maybe make your justifications off of that, but I think this is the ideal role for him to succeed in the NBA. I think he needs to focus more on facilitating. He's surrounded by good shooters, taking advantage of mismatches when he can and he's a really good post player Carson when they put a smaller guard on him you see him take advantage of those mismatches and put up little hook shots and get his buckets inside he's not a good shooter so why try to force him to become like yes I think it's something he needs to focus on but why do that on the floor take advantage of what you can and more importantly he's just a hard-nosed defender he's great at getting chase down blocks he's great at getting timely steals getting into passing lanes I just think that they're maximizing their star's talent this season and leaning into their strong suits by surrounding their team with a secondary perimeter defender in Danny Green who can shoot, uh, a secondary facilitator and one of the best shooters in the NBA in Seth Curry. Um, Carson, I don't think I'm far out by saying that I don't think the 76ers are just one of the best teams in the East. I think they're one of the best teams in the league. I agree. I just can't take them as my Eastern Conference favorites. And They're playing great basketball. They have taken strides on the defensive end. Obviously, the added spacing is just sort of liberating for these guys. Harris has been incredible at doing what he does so well, and I've criticized him for maybe taking this offense out of the flow a little bit by deciding, okay, this is a Tobias Harris possession. I'm going to just take a mid-range pull-up, or I'm going to shoot a post-fade. But he's doing it so incredibly well this year that I don't think I can hold that against the mind-blowing efficiency there. But, of course, the revolution is Embiid, and he is playing... Far and away the best basketball of his life. Now, I may be the guy who says that he doesn't deserve to be MVP. That's not because of him. That's because there's a certain Serbian guy who is having the greatest offensive season of any big man ever, and it's not close. Maybe a little bit of Nerd Sesh premium content coming on that very topic later today. You don't actually have to pay for it, so don't worry about the premium there. But the thing with Embiid is he's obviously always been able to just be so physically dominant when he's engaged. He's always been probably the most skilled post scorer in basketball, I would say, along with Jokic. But... Never like this. He's shooting 49% on jump shots this year. He's shooting 56.6% from mid-range. His face-up game is absolutely lethal. His pull-up game is absolutely lethal. And now he can be that closer for you. The question for this Philly team has always been, who is that closer? Maybe it's not ideal for it to be a center who you have to get the ball to in the post, but maybe you don't have to get the ball to him. Maybe you just need to get him the ball at the three-point line, and then he takes a couple steps in and drills a pull-up in people's faces. So that's been revolutionary. Obviously, the addition of Curry and Green has been revolutionary. Shake Milton is just one of the best six men in basketball, and he has that two-way impact. He's an awesome creator for himself. And this team top to bottom is improved. I still have questions, though, about a squad that doesn't really have that half-court point guard. This team is just so weird. Things have to run through Embiid some of the time. Yeah, you have shooters who are going to get open and are going to benefit off of the interior dominance of Embiid and the gravity that there is there. But it's just a little strange. You wouldn't say Seth Curry is that half-court point guard? I guess, but like, he's never really been a point guard in his career. He's basically been a two. He's been the kind of guy who's primarily in catch-and-shoot roles, and he's doing okay as that facilitator right now, but they kind of rotate ball handlers and all that. It's just a little weird as far as how it translates to the biggest moments. But I want to ask you sort of a sub-true or false question here, because you talked about Simmons and how great he has been on the defensive end. True or false? Ben Simmons is the best perimeter defender in basketball. I'm going to go false, and the only reason I go with that is just because I think I'd probably rather take Giannis on the perimeter just because of how long he is um, and how 
I don't know he, how much more physically imposing he is, but I think Ben Simmons has better hands than uh, Giannis. I think he's a better guy at stealing. Uh, I think we saw that. Um, I saw one highlight uh, against the Trailblazers. He just punched it out of Ennis Canner's hands, and then they immediately had a fast break. He's so good at doing that, at just capitalizing on when guys aren't paying attention. So I'll throw it back to you, Carson. Do you think Ben Simmons is the best perimeter defender in the NBA? I actually do. And obviously Giannis won Depoy last year. I was not in that camp. Now, I know that his numbers were incredible. But I also think that he was the benefactor of being able to effectively play free safety in that system. And yeah, with his tremendous length. And I know that I think he held people below 13% below their normal field goal percentage when he's the primary defender. That's insane. I just think that Simmons' effort is so much more consistent. And if you look at his versatility, his ability to truly guard point guards to me is on a different level from Giannis. What he did against Dame in that Portland game was incredible. Would not let him get to his spots for a second. And you also talk about maybe the greatest advantage of his... I love watching guys who are so in tune to when ball handlers are lazy with the ball and just say, okay, this is an opportunity for me to get a steal that this guy's not expecting. Simmons, to me, is the best in the league at that, and that's something I've loved about him on that end for quite a while. So do you think that does Ben Simmons' defensive value, because he's guarding point guards, does that help him because he's always on a smaller uh, offensive player? Well, I don't think he always guards point guards. He can guard anybody, and... I don't know if that would help him because that's harder for most people. I mean, that's why you try to get switches of 6'10", 6'11", guys out to the perimeter, not Ben Simmons. Well, that's what I I think that helps is the uh, is the Sixers system as a whole. Everybody's so good at switching off of screens, and Ben is like a – you're right. He's like a, a chess piece in the fact that you can put him anywhere. He's so good at switching off of defenders, and he can guard all five positions. So what is your ranking then, real quick? Well, I would have Simmons atop the league. I think that – Draymond, it's tough to gauge how much is his perimeter value versus just his general uh, versatility, his ability to also be an elite post defender, all that. But I absolutely think he's in that conversation right now. Of course, Giannis, I think a fully engaged Kawhi is there. I think P.J. Tucker, again, is a guy where it's sort of a combination of the interior and the perimeter. But there are a lot of great wing defenders in basketball right now. I do think, though, that Simmons, to me, is the pinnacle of it. And I think that's a position for that I've held for about a year now and maybe been a little bit closeted about it. But I'm all in on Ben Simmons for best perimeter defender in basketball. So let's talk now about a team that, like the Heat and the Raptors of earlier, got off to a not-so-great start, and now they are trending in the right direction. The Dallas Mavericks, I've been saying for quite some time, Logan, that they were going to be fine. Are they officially fine? True or false? The Mavs are always going to be fine. When you have Luka Doncic on the floor, I mean, he's... Luke is insane. 27, 8.5, 9 assists on 46% from the field. Luca averages his most points per game on drives, the second most assists per game on drives. He's 76 in pick and roll percentile. He's just, he's one of the best offensive engines in basketball. So whenever Luca is playing, the Mavericks are going to be in contention to win a game and they're going to be fine. That being said, though, Carson, I don't think they can be better than they were last year until we get some more talent around them. In Games in which the Mavericks have shot over 40% from deep, I think this is a recipe for success for them. If they shoot well from deep, if Kristaps Porzingis shows up, they're going to win games. If they don't shoot well, they're going to lose. 8-2 and two in games where they shot over 40% from deep, and they're 4-7 and seven when they shoot under 40%. And I, I still think that the Mavericks are mediocre and kind of porous on the interior defensively as well, Carson. I think that that's an issue of Kristaps Porzingis' reluctancy to go inside. I think... Um, I just don't think that they have the makeup uh, of a really elite defensive team, and that would help them if you just have Luka dominating the offensive end. They're 23rd in rebounding. They're 23rd in blocks. They're fifth in opponent field goal percentage inside five feet. So, yes, they're fine, but at the end of the day, I still think this is a team that ends up with the 6-8 to seed and gets knocked out in the first round. Yeah, I think that I agree with that assessment for the most part, and 
What's been really hard to see from KP is, obviously, he has not taken the strides that maybe we were optimistic he would offensively. He is shooting 47% from the field, but it's still so many jump shots, and he's so tremendously skilled at it. Good for him. But I just want to see less of those pulse fades when you have a little guy on you, man. It's going to always pain me when I watch him. He's taking 2.9 free throws a game this year. He's scoring 21 points a game. That's incredible. He's 7-3, though, and he's a legitimate athlete. We've had this conversation probably 20 times on Nerdsesh. We don't need to have it again. But it is the most frustrating thing to watch in the NBA. And it's so frustrating to watch him get hot like he did the other night, 8 of 13 from behind the arc. It's Kristaps, if you could do this all the time, please do it. I mean, it looks effortless because of how tall he is. He just flicks his wrist, and it's in there. But when he's off, he's off. It's just not a reliable enough source of offense from a guy that's seven foot three. It's <laughs> I'm tired. I'm tired of criticizing Kristaps Porzingis' style of play. It's frustrating. Yeah, I think that we've done it enough, so I think that we can give him a break right now. But I will say, the thing that has stood out this year, I think as well, is that he is just not the same player defensively that it has been in years past. And still brings you value as a rim protector, definitely, but just is increasingly less and less mobile in space. And I think that that's a little bit problematic. And even as a rim protector, I would say he's not quite as dynamic as he's been in years past. So if you're going to point to an issue for the Mavs, it's going to be they're still 26th in defensive rating. I don't think that can get worse from here. I think it probably gets better from here, especially when you look at the fact that they haven't lost any personnel on the defensive end of significance. I wouldn't say. In fact, if anything, they've gained a guy who should be an upgrade defensively in Josh Richardson. But... The reason they're officially fine, Logan, this was the worst three-point team, three-point shooting team in basketball for quite some time. Last year, they made the second most threes in the league, and they have had so many quality looks traded for them there because of the gravity of Luka. I said that was never going to hold. What are they doing over their last four games? They're 45% from three. They're 4-0. This is also the first time this entire season that they're fully healthy. With all the injuries sustained to Powell and Finney Smith and Richardson and KP, and Maxi Kleba, basically everybody on this team, now they're fully healthy. And I also think the reason that, as you said, they will always be fine is Luka, at 21 years old now, he was the best 20-year-old in NBA history, he is somehow a lot better than last year. And I think that if anyone was going to point to the one deficiency of his game, it was probably maybe the consistency of his outside shot and some of his deficiencies as a closer. So what is he doing now? I think that he's carving out a lot more of offense in the range that he knows is pivotal when it comes to winning times in games. Shooting 46% for mid-range versus 35% last year, taking three times as many per game. He's posting up almost twice as much and is super efficient out of there, 81st percentile. To me, the most underrated part of Luka's game is just his wizardry out of the post. Such beautiful footwork, and he reminds you that he's 6'7", 6'8", and can just make dudes look silly down there. But it's the mid-range game. That's huge. When we when he came into the league, we saw Luka doing that. Over his first couple weeks, when I declared he was going to be a Hall of Famer, it was one of the most beautiful things about his game, I thought. And then we saw him go to more of the hard and formulaic, okay, get into the lane or take the three every time. Get into the lane or take the three. And that's, for the most part, an efficient way to play basketball. But now he has found that mid-range rhythm again. He's found that incredible post-offense. And that takes him up even another level. And I think people will criticize Luka's three-point shot as they should this season, but I still think Luka's one of the best contested three-point shooters in the league this season. He can pull up on two guys. He can pull up with one guy in his face. It really doesn't matter. Um, Luka's got a chance at having that go in. So I still think you can criticize that, but I still want Luka closing out games for me. And it's fascinating because there have been a few instances now, and one of them was against the Warriors. The other one was in the Mavs game a couple days ago. I can't remember who it was against, where teams say, we are going to double Luka in those last-second situations. Now, personally for me, when you see him gearing up for that step back, I know that he is 
deadly from there at times, but he's also inconsistent, and he's hot as cold, hot and cold as a shooter. And to me, if you have the chance between seeing Luka find the open man or having Luka make a contested setback three, I will say make him make that contested setback three. But he is shooting a lot better. If you look over his last six games, he's 41% from deep. I think that that was bound to come at some point. I think he's always a better shooter than the percentages say because, as you mentioned, it's all stepbacks. He doesn't have those easy looks off the catch. His touch is incredible. And I also think you see just his gravity is so tremendous. He's one of the best passers in basketball. Mavs are 10.4 points per 100 better with him on the floor than off the floor. That surprises absolutely nobody, I wouldn't think, because he's everything for this team, and he will continue to be everything. And as long as they can be decent on the defensive end, as long as the James Johnsons of the world don't mess everything up, then the Mavs will be fine. And I still think will be a scary team come playoff time just because of their overwhelming offense. So I agree with you. They're in the lower tier of playoff teams, but I think that they're still probably closer to the sixth best team in the West than the 10th or whatever their record is suggested for most of this year. Let's talk about a team that is very much on the opposite side of the spectrum, Logan. The Orlando Magic. Haven't given them much talking time this year. We do like to talk about the bad teams, but the Magic are a particularly painful bad team because they're also not fun to watch. True or false? They're a bottom three team in the league right now. Yeah, true. I mean, to put it simply, the Orlando Magic suck. Uh, The biggest reason why the Magic have been successful in the last few years was because of how dominant they were defensively. They weren't going to put up points on you, but they were at least going to clamp. 10th in defensive rating last season. This season, they are 20th in defensive rating. And even more frustrating, they go at the 20th highest pace. They're They're 28th in offense. I mean... It's an anemic offense, Carson, that doesn't really move the ball a whole lot. They don't really have any playmakers. A lot of their touches go down to Nikola Vucevic down in the post, which is an efficient offense. Carson, I think this is something, this is a more of an overarching look at the Orlando Magic, but there's been like a complete reluctancy to rebuild, so this team has very little young talent. I would say the best two young stars in their roster are Markel Fultz and Cole Anthony. They just have no one to build around. They have nothing to look forward to. I feel bad for Orlando Magic fans, Carson, because... This team just has refused to blow it up, so they are just a mediocre team. And when that defense goes, when they don't have that stout defense to rely on, it just turns out to be a really bad basketball team to watch and a really bad basketball team record-wise. So if we're saying they're a bottom three team, let's clarify who you would have below them. So the Wizards, Pistons, and T-Wolves, I would say, are just the utterly disgusting basketball teams right now. Which one of those three are you taking above the Magic? The Wizards. Really? I mean... I still think the Magic are better than the Wizards defensively, but I'd just rather take Russ and Bradley Beal on a game-to-game basis than who the Magic have. I just haven't seen it work for a second yet. And also, what's so weird about the Wizards is it seems like they're in tank mode, I guess, because every other game, either Beal or Russ is sitting out. We saw Garrison Matthews start yesterday, and you're just like, why? And they're also 29th in the league in in defensive rating. Of course, we knew they would be terrible there. We just thought maybe they would be okay offensively. And they have not been okay offensively. They're 22nd there as well. So I actually don't think the Magic are a bottom three team in the league. And I think that maybe there's a chance that the healthy T-Wolves are better. We just saw Cat play his first game in a while. Good to see him back and available. But their defense is still so bad. And again, they still don't have that sort of fluidity, that cohesion. It's so much one-on-one creation with guys like Beasley and Edwards and D'Lo that I'm not optimistic there. I think the Magic could still easily be a play-in team. And they're 10-17 and right now. They have had pretty brutal luck this season, obviously, with with Jonathan Isaac not there to begin with after he injured himself in the bubble, with Markel Fultz going down very early in the season. They have had to make some difficult adjustments on the fly. I think when you talk about Vucevic, he's having such an awesome season, and he is in so many ways 
crucial to this team's success, and it's a tough spot for him to be in because he's a good passer out of the post. He obviously doesn't have the value of a Jokic where he can facilitate an entire offense, or even, I would say, a DeMontis Sabonis, who is just a higher-level playmaker there. He's doing everything he can. He's facilitating in the post. You see him create off DHOs. You see him do it off the roll, off the pop, out of the post as a scorer. He just does everything, and I think that the biggest escalation of his game has been the floor spacing that we've always known he is going to keep defenses honest from beyond the arc, but the dude is making over 43% of his 6.3 three-point attempts per game this season. That is elite flame-throwing shooting, and maybe you didn't expect that, but besides really him and with Evan Fournier having missed almost half the games this season, it's just a really spotty roster. It's a lot of Dwayne Bacon, and I think I like Cole Anthony. I think that he's a talented guy, but the playmaking isn't there yet. I don't think he's a true point guard in the league. That's what I said in my evaluation of him in the draft as well. He just gets too much tunnel vision. He can uh, dribble the life out of the ball a little bit, and he just misses opportunities, and the efficiency isn't there yet either, as you would expect from a rookie guard. He's in a spot that he wasn't supposed to be in, and he's been okay, but they certainly missed the half-court poise of a Markel Fultz. Some of the pick-and-roll creation, again, maybe Fultz wasn't great out of the pick-and-roll, but I think he was better and just more consistent than Cole Anthony has been right now. And the depth is problematic. I mentioned the Dwayne Bacon minutes, the James Ennis minutes. It's a lot of Kem Birch. Just a lot of unproven dudes out there. The reason I hold out hope, though, because some of these guys aren't coming back. Fultz is not coming back. Jonathan Isaac is not coming back. I do think Evan Fournier is so important to the success of this team. They're 7-7 and when he plays, and they're bottom five in three-pointers made and three-point percentage this season. And it's really hard to not have your best shooter for that. Now, is he going to be that kind of facilitator, primary ball handler that maybe you need more than anything else? No. But I do think he can do a lot out of the pick-and-roll with... Nikola Vucevic, particularly if you look at DHO action, just because of his ability to shoot in tight windows, get that shot off quickly, off the catch. He has so much value there. So it's really hard when you're missing your second best player, your third best player, who I would say is Jonathan Isaac when he's out there and healthy, and your fourth best player, who I would say is Marco Fultz. Maybe better than that with how he started off the very beginning of the season, although he did certainly come back to earth. So are you taking the Magic to be a play-in team? Well, I don't have to. I just have to say that they're not a bottom three team in the league. And I don't think they're a bottom three team in the league. It'll be interesting to see if they get better. It'll be interesting to see how Fournier does impact the success of this team. Shout out to Vooch, though, because, you know, obviously he's been an all-star in the past. I don't think he'll be one this year, but he's playing the best basketball of his career for sure. So let's look now to one last team that has also been affected by injuries. But they've been doing okay in spite of that. With Yusuf Nurkic out, with C.J. McCollum out, the Blazers are still sitting at the five seed in the Western Conference. So, Logan, here's a spicy one for you. True or false, the Blazers don't really need C.J. McCollum. I'm going to go false because I have to. C.J. is too talented to say true, but I understand why someone would say this, and it's because C.J. doesn't do a whole lot that other guys on this team don't. A lot of ISO possessions, a lot of contested shots, and that's what CJ's good at, but this roster is kind of constructed to be good at that. You've got a guy like Carmelo Anthony, who is good at just going ISO. Damian Lillard, who is good at getting those ISO shots up. But I don't know, Carson. It's just kind of hard for me to agree that a guy who's putting up 26 points per game this season is a guy that the Trailblazers simply don't need. I think Damian Lillard needs that second guy to rely on to take the pressure off as a secondary ball handler, as a secondary playmaker, and McCollum's elite in that role. Um, 
So, no, I do think the Trailblazers need him, but I think that there are a lot of guys that can supplement his value um, in, in your your boy, and I'm sure you've got some spicy Gary Trent numbers to serve up for us. Um, when Yusuf Nurkic and Ennis Kanter are healthy, they're two elite offensive centers, which can, again, supplement CJ's value. Uh, so, no, let's hear it, Carson. Tell, tell me why Gary Trent uh, should be starting. Okay, well, Gary Trent should be starting for a number of reasons. I would say because he's a 45% three-point shooter when you have Derek Jones Jr. and Rocco, who for the majority of the season haven't been able to make a shot. Rocco at 30%, Derek Jones Jr. at 28% from deep. But I've made that case so many times, Logan, that I'm not going to make it again. This is a close one for me. I guess it just depends on how you define need. I am actually going to say that it's false, though. I think they do need CJ, and the key reason is what you just touched on. He's that release valve. He's the reason that teams can't just double dame off the pick and roll every time. And a shooter like Gary Trent can punish that. But Gary Trent, as much as he wants to be that real decision maker, that primary ball handler, as much as he wants to shoot mid-range pull-ups, he's not very good at it yet. And he's really not good at getting downhill. He has basically no offensive game if it's not jump shooting. And he's a fantastic, fantastic natural shooter of the basketball. And there are times where he gets going and his pull-up game is as deadly as it is off the catch, it's just less consistent, it's less refined, and when he gets into that mid-range area where there's not as much space, I think that we find that he struggles a little bit, although he does get going at times. And you compare that to CJ, who is just a flat-out mid-range artist, and was playing, by the way, far and away the best basketball of his life this season, giving you 27-4-5 and on 47% from the field, 44% from three, and it's even more than that because the shots he's taking are so much more efficient. It's less mid-range, as great as he is, it's more threes. He was taking 11 threes a game. His previous career high was 7.3. And when you're making 44% of them, that's the equivalent of shooting 66% on two-pointers, right? That's mind-blowing efficiency. And that's what he was bringing to the table this year. He was 49% off the catch. He's 42% on pull-up threes. And by the way, he was still just unbelievable for mid-range at 53%. Let me ask a little follow-up question here, though. Because they're without both McCollum and Nurk. And they were 8-5 and five with McCollum. They're now 7-5 and five since he went down with injury. We know how the Nurkic loss impacted them last year. Who is more important to this team? Who do they need more, if you will, between McCollum and Nurkic? Mm, that's a good question. I'm I'm going to go Nurkic, and the only reason why is Ennis Cantor cannot be a starting center in the NBA. Mm-hmm. He's a liability defensively. He's He just gets bullied on the inside like... Uh, I think McCollum is important to what this team does, but because Lillard and... Because Lillard just needs catch-and-shoot guys around him because he can have Trent and Carmelo play off-ball to him. And he'll command a lot of attention, but he will make you pay if you double-team him in those situations. And his cancer is just so bad defensively that they need Nurkic more than I think they need McCollum purely defensively. I think that that is true. I also think on the offensive end, though, what Nurkic does is so unique as that playmaker out of the post. And it's weird because this year he was passing the ball, I would say, about as well as ever. I love watching him pass just because... He's one of those guys who likes to throw one-handed passes as much as, awesome, as much as possible, which is just an aesthetically pleasing thing to do, and I especially love passers out of the post. I think it's an awesome skill set to have. But the scoring, this guy was giving you 17.6 a game in the regular season in the bubble last year, and he was under 10 this year, and we saw the minutes go down as well. He's always been on minutes restrictions basically throughout his entire career, and he wasn't coming off that injury last year. Now he's playing 23 minutes a game this year, so... I don't know that I can say with complete confidence what Nurkic is, if he's going to be peak Nurkic going forward with the just flurry of injuries that he has endured. But I do think that when he's at his best, he has a more unique, more important skill set than 
what CJ McCollum brings to the table as incredible as he has been. So let me ask you this, Logan. We've talked about a few teams in sort of a similar tier of the Western Conference, and we talked about the parity earlier as well. I think that things are starting to shape up where we are getting an image of who the playoff teams are actually going to be a little bit more. Now, the Spurs is the sixth seed. As much as I like them, do I think that that holds? No. But we have the Mavs, the Warriors, the Nuggets, the Blazers, all these teams at least in playoff position right right now. The Mavs are in the ninth seed, but they are in the play-in. If you had to rank those teams one through four, the Blazers, the Nuggets, the Warriors, and the Mavs, who are you taking atop that list, and who are you putting at the bottom? That's an excellent question, Carson, as always. Um, hey, thanks. I'm going to go number one, the Denver Nuggets, because I think they have the best star out of all of the teams, and Nikola Jokic, their offense just always moves smoothly, and when they are engaged defensively, they're unstoppable. Two, I am going to go Golden State, honestly. They are the better defensive team out of all four. Uh, Steph Curry's playing at an MVP level. Third, I'm going the Mavericks. And then fourth, I'm going the Trailblazers. The Trailblazers out of this group are the worst defensively. And Carson, to a point we've made time and time again, I don't know why they haven't tried Rocco at the five. I think it would fix a lot of their issues. You could play Ennis right off the bench. I think that's his best role. But the Trailblazers, because of their defensive liabilities, are definitely fourth out of that group for me. Very interesting. I still want to see the fully healthy Blazers because I was optimistic about them coming into this year. Now, I thought that they could be an okay defense. They have not been an okay defense. They've been terrible there. I like your rankings, actually. I think the Nuggets, despite their defensive issues, are probably number one on this list for me because that offense is a nonstop machine. I think that really three of these four teams have great offenses and maybe some more defensive questions. The Warriors are tough to rank, but with the way that they've been playing as of late, which is certainly the best basketball of their season, with what they're getting from Steph, with Kelly Oubre coming into his own a little bit more, with Draymond just playing some of the best defensive basketball and some of the best playmaking that you could ask for from him, they're making a case for second in this conversation. I asked you a question that I don't know if I can answer myself. I feel okay with Nuggets at the top. I think I'm still going to go with Blazers number two. I think that when they are fully healthy out there, that is a heck of a basketball team because of the offensive end. And then Warriors-Mavs. What a tricky one. I'm going to go Mavs. I think that when they are fully in the flow of things, they're going to be a hell of an offensive basketball team. Do I feel great about this list that I've just assembled? Not at all. I think that I could honestly interchange any of those four teams, and I just need more data, okay? And then I will make the perfect assessment as I always do. I mean, another guy that you didn't mention, Andrew Wiggins has been a lead on the defensive end for the Warriors this season, so it just surprises me that, I don't know, that you're going with uh, the Mavericks and Blazers offensive output over the Warriors' defensive output. Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, the Warriors are 7th in defensive rating right now. They've been really strong consistently on that end. After some early season struggles, they have figured all that out. We'll come back to this. I want to have a better picture of what all these teams look like fully healthy because for the Mavs and the Blazers, we just really haven't seen it yet. And we'll see if the Nuggets can figure out their defensive issues, and we'll see if the Warriors can sustain this level they've been at for the last few games because they have been such a roller coaster of a team this year. But that will do it for us here today on Nerd Sesh. What a joy it is to be back here in the Bill Austin Radio studio talking basketball live with all of you. It is one of our great honors in this world. You can go and listen to our earlier shows from this week. Uh, we are available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. We did some Super Bowl debrief on Monday. We talked about the top 10 big threes in NBA history on Wednesday. You can follow us on Twitter at nerd underscore sesh and on Instagram at nerd sesh. And with that, I've been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh.
What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.